Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Let's pray together. God, be our vision, be our heart, be our mind, be before us and beneath us, behind us and above. Wrap us in your love. Open us to your word. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, the parables of Jesus have teeth. Most of them bite just a little bit. Sometimes I know that we feel worn down by the responsibilities of life. Sometimes we feel like what we need is a warm hug. And so we want that warm hug from Jesus. But sometimes Jesus isn't really in a vineyard that makes it um, convenient for a warm hug. Sometimes Jesus is in a vineyard that is high stakes, and it takes more than a warm hug to make things happen. And in this particular scripture today, we know that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and he is riding into the heart of high stakes, conflict. He's ridden in, and as he, as he rode in, so many people came out to meet him and acclaim him as the Messiah and put the palm branches down, and he rode his donkey across the palm branches. But what we oftentimes don't understand is what was happening across on the other side of Jerusalem at exactly the same time. Exactly the same time across Jerusalem, the emperor was riding in with his chariots and the horses and the grand army to the cheers and many of them, the paid cheers, of the people who were throwing flowers in his path and waving scarves to show their allegiance to this emperor who was called the son of God. So you see, it wasn't just a children's story that Jesus was riding in on the other side of Jerusalem on a donkey with palm fronds and coats laid down to the cheers of children and people who were peasants and captives. He was riding into the heart of conflict with a message. He rode in, and then the very next day, he went to the temple to teach. This infuriated the religious leaders because, you see, they were paid. The religious leaders were paid by the emperor's court to keep the Jews in line. So if the Jews were over here practicing sedition, riding, riding in on a donkey and people cheering, and they're not over there cheering for the emperor, they're, they're stirring things up. They were upset and they were furious with Jesus. So they come to him and they're waiting for him to start speaking. This is from Matthew 21. Then Jesus was back in the temple teaching. The high priests and leaders of the people came up and demanded, show us your credentials. Who authorized you to teach here? And Jesus responded, first, let me ask you a question. 
You answer my question, and I'll answer yours. About the baptism of John, who authorized it? Heaven or humans? And they were on the spot, and they knew it. They pulled back into a huddle and whispered, if we say heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe him. If we say humans, we're up against it with the people because they all hold John up as a prophet. They decided to concede the round to Jesus. We don't know, they answered. Jesus said, then neither will I answer your question. Tell me what you think of this story. A man had two sons. He went up to the first and said, son, go out for the day and work in the vineyard. And the son answered, I don't want to. Later on, he thought better of it, and he went. The father gave the same command to the second son. He answered, sure, glad to, but he never went. Which of the two sons did what the father asked? And they said, the first. Jesus said, yes, and I tell you that crooks and whores are going to precede you into God's kingdom. John came to you showing you the right road. You turned up your noses at him, but the crooks and the whores believed him. Even when you saw their changed lives, you didn't care enough to change and believe him. When Jesus encounters their questioning of his authority, on what credentials do you have to speak? With his own question of who they judge John to be working for, this is what happens. You see, they have forgotten what it is to be followers of the one and true God, and they have become politicians. So they can't answer right or wrong. They can't answer best. They can't answer with their soul searching of the scriptures and their understanding of it. They can only answer on what serves us best. How can we answer this in a way that, that we don't get in trouble and maybe we can come out of this unscathed. And so what do they end up doing is having no answer, having no opinion. They sold their soul and have no opinion on a religious question. Since they provide no direct answer, Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer you. I don't think that was just petulance. I think what Jesus was really saying is, if you don't know the answer to that, you're not going to understand the answers to who gave me authority. If you don't understand John, you're not going to understand me. So he starts off, he starts off as a rabbi would with three parables to respond to them indirectly. Three parables that are confrontational parables. And this is the first of the confrontational stories. Jesus starts off with a question, a very uh, typical rabbi question. What do you think if... And he starts off with that question. This is a way to start deliberation and debate. This is a way to say, really, what do you think? Let's talk about this. Let's wrestle with this. Let's engage with this. It's not a simple story about good guys finishing first. This isn't a simple story about lifting up the person who does the right thing. In effect, both sons have done wrong. Does this sound familiar? 
We have many stories that have two sons in them. You know it's always the boys. So we all know that anyway. But these two sons, these are different sons than the prodigal son. These two sons, both of them are wrong. Both of them, uh, one in word and one in deed. One says no and does it anyway, and one says no and doesn't do it. And the way the, the, way the religious leaders say it, it's, it's only the one who did it, but it's, he didn't agree to it. He's the, he's the right one. And Jesus says, You're, you guys are going to be last. You still don't even understand what's going on. In a world in which there is enough moral failing to go around, are there any, any that are going to be called righteous? Anybody. And if there is anybody, surely it's the one who's done their very best to follow the rules. But Jesus' next words are devastating. Just when they think they've got the right answer, just at least it's got to be the rule followers. Jesus says, the crooks and the whores are going into the kingdom ahead of you. What? And this is the linchpin. That sentence is the linchpin that makes everything click into place. All of a sudden, we know who is who. We know who are the yes men and who are the transformed sinners. And it's shocking. And sometimes, to be honest with you, it even seems like an unjust idea. It's hard to be good, and it's hard to follow the rules all the time. It takes self-discipline and restraint and courage. Is it possible that the behaviors and values that feel like honest expressions of faithfulness to God in our inherited tradition might be demeaned? And God would grant favor to those who simply confess their brokenness? It's got to be more complicated than that. It can't be enough that you feel like you're broken and you need God. Then you need to obey all the rules. No church can exist in which every person consistently breaks all the rules. Then they say, I'm sorry. And then they come back expecting to be restored. It would be mayhem and total chaos. Can you imagine? We know some people break the rules all the time, but if all of us broke the rules all the time, came back and expected, just by saying we're sorry and confessing our sins, that all of a sudden we'd be right with everybody, it would just be chaos. However, this particular story isn't a story about a book of order. It's not a story about really behaviors and following rules and regulations. It simply says that no church can exist if people who consistently break the rules and come back and say, I'm sorry, are not fully restored to membership. Because the new church, the new way of being, obediently following the rules, requires forgiveness. It requires it. It's not optional. As confused as the temple leadership may be about the authority of John, Jesus makes his position extremely clear. He says John's was the voice of the prophetic tradition. You know, pro prophetic. 
A lot of times people think that means seeing into the future. Prophetic actually means being called into rightness with God, repentance. A voice saying, don't do this. Come back to God. Terrible things will happen, not because God is going to make them happen, but because these are the consequences of terrible behavior. Prophetic tradition raised again after long silence, and God helped those who didn't listen to John. That's what Jesus is saying. While notorious sinners discerning that voice as God's only were plunging into the river at, the, at Jordan and wa- being washed clean of their sins by the hand of John, those who should have seen first and get it, instead they watched, they sat back, and they analyzed. Huh. He doesn't look like the one we thought. He's not one of us. He came out of the you know, left field. He eats locusts. And they analyzed him, and they didn't stop and think about what he was saying. They didn't, they didn't even remember this grand longevity of tradition, of understanding how God would come, how God would be, and how God had worked across the ages with the most unlikely people. But before we move on, it's really important to go back and eliminate the temptation to use this parable in ways, I think, that diminish it or eliminate its central message. This isn't meant to paint a derogatory picture of the Jewish leadership and say that too bad they didn't have more wisdom than Christian disciples. It's not meant to do that. Nor is it meant to tell us that the parable, in exactly the way it was intended in that moment, is good enough to unpack because, it, in a way, that leaves us informed but underfed. It's not meant to be either a, a moralizing parable. Jesus wasn't into that. It's not meant to say, all talk, no action, as a prod to... Uh, paying your stewardship dues or doing something else. It's, it has more depth than that. Instead, the parable, it begs us to imagine the vineyards to which we are each called. The vineyards that Jesus says, go out and tend the vineyards. What does our vineyard look like? That is what this parable is about. The father said to the sons, go out and tend the the vineyards. That's the message. There are vineyards that we must attend to. You can imagine the vineyard together that where the church has been sent, that question of why us, why here, why now? What does our vineyard look like? What does your vineyard look like? We can think in terms of the spiritual nurture of our children, the spiritual and and material needs of our neighbors, the, the community as our vineyard. And making the vineyard concrete and local is true to the text itself, much more true than moralizing it. And it keeps us from trading in grand abstractions that typically generate minimal imagination and minimal energy or motivation. Nor is it helpful for us to ask you, which son are you? 
The truth is that as individuals and as a congregation, we've all been and we all will be both sons at different times. We will be. Our no is not necessarily a, rebel, a rebellious sneer. Maybe our no to the Father is offhand. Maybe it's even an apologetic excuse for those who are busy and preoccupied. Then one gracious day, we discover that what we have mistaken for a longing for success and affection or knowledge and adventure is in fact a hunger for the vineyards of God. And nothing will do but to give ourselves over to those vast fields, sowing God's mercy and compassion, being those vineyard keepers in those vast fields. We, at times, we are the other child, too. All yes and send me. Our zeal is fueled by an exciting new preacher, an edgy new book, a very exclusive small group. We feel very energized by that. And months later, the embers have cooled and then parked in our traditional spot out of sheer habit. We may find ourselves recalled by a phrase of scripture or a sermon or a song or a prayer. And in that moment, it cuts to our soul. Whether resistant or eager, Devoted or distracted, I think, personally, we can all take heart from this parable. Look at the vineyard we live in. This vineyard is no less wrought with conflict, fear, hatred, bigotry, racism, as it was in the days of Jesus. So rather than being simply people, in the vineyard, could we not take Jesus' lead and be those who tend to the vineyard? Could we not step out of the hatred and the fear and the bigotry and the racism, step back from that and have a word, have a word to speak in the vineyard? We can all take heart because both children are the fathers and both children are the mothers. Both are summoned and both are sent. The fact is, we don't really know how it ends. That's the beauty of the parables of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say. And then it becomes our story. And now our story, we understand, is open-ended. Go to the vineyard. <laughs>